Hey everybody, welcome back. We're the Menschwarmers, your bi-weekly look at the world of Jews and sports. Gabe, how you doing, buddy? Uh, I'm good. I'm very good. We're uh, we're flying, I guess, nude tonight. Is that the right phrase? Our producer, Michael, had a, a child emergency, so the inmates are really running the asylum tonight. Yeah, that's right. We can just talk about... Uh, well, I don't know if there's anything that Michael stops us from talking no, about. No, uh, it turns out our, 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 personal, our personal golf games. Gabe, you playing golf lately? Uh, or our true passion, French cooking. We would love for this to be right. a, a Cordon Bleu-style podcast, but our producer just keeps a really tight rein on us and forces us to talk about Jews and sports the whole time. Yeah, this is Jews and sports, not uh, Julia Child and sports. Yeah. Jews, oh. Jews and Julia. We should do a little Jews and Julia. Jews and Julia would be a good corner, or Julia Child corner. Is there any Jewish? Have you watched the uh, Have you watched the Julia Child HBO show? I haven't. Although HBO will become relevant later on in this uh, this episode, I've I've not. Does Julia Child have any Jewish connection? Um, so she probably I once don't... said some sort of slur about Jews. <laughs> I, I don't know that she was anti-Semitic. I, I think that there were people in her world who were who were Jewish. I I don't think Judith Jones was. Although, so her publisher, Judith Jones, um, also was like the person who found the Diary of Anne Frank and got it published by, by Knopf, I think. Really? And, that's an and amazing just, story. So that's just fun, fun tidbit. Like, that's just wild to be like, yeah, I have two big hits in my career, uh, Anne Frank and Julia Child. I mean, she also yeah. published a lot of other stuff. She was sort of a legendary publisher. Um, but uh, I guess the Knopf people, um, uh, what's her name? Um, Judith Light plays uh, the... Knopf publisher, who's a real life figure, and uh, yeah. it's got some Jews in the show. And BB Newirth's in it. Um, uh, David Hyde Pierce from Frasier also plays uh, her husband. Plays I, Paul. I would say that, so. Yeah, so th- this is enough w- talk about the Julia Child show. I, just to say, it, it's not a very good show because there's no conflict in it. Everyone just wants Julia to succeed and right. works on that, and she does. Ooh, lovely souffle, um, Julia. I I think there <laughs> is a connection here, which is that you know she was in the OSS during World War II. Um, and World War II notably featured a lot of Jewish people. Speaking of which, tonight we're talking about one of, you know, a very recently released HBO Max movie released on Yom HaShoah uh, two weeks ago, um, starring Ben Foster called The Survivor. The Survivor tells the story yep. of, of Harry Haft, a man who survived during in his time in Auschwitz and adjacent camps by boxing, uh, basically to save his life. But... Not to spoil that, let's uh, get on before we talk about the movie. What's new in the news of uh, Jews and sports, Jamie? Well, right off the bat, uh, pun intended, I want to talk about our bashing boy <laughs> chick himself, Rowdy Telez, who has just been on a tear the last few weeks. Um, Rowdy Telez, you know, dearly departed from our Toronto Blue Jays to the Milwaukee uh, Brewers last year. In the last two weeks, has just been on tear. Four, four home runs. Uh, 13, or 13 RBIs in the last few weeks, including an 8 RBI game yes. on uh, on on May 4th against the the Reds. Now, I guess that's sort of like playing a Triple A team, but still impressive. He set a uh, he set a Brewers record for most RBIs in a game with eight. So he is out of the gate charging, and and you know he's going to be a big guy on the on the Brewers this year, a team that you know looks to compete in the NL Central. And he was one, and he also won um, the Player of the Week. Yeah, so congratulations to him. Uh, Rowdy's definitely, you know, the the big 
the big boy chick on campus so far in terms of Jewish hitters this year. You know, Alex Bregman hasn't really uh, rammed it into form yet. It's still early. It's only, you know, midway through May. So it's very it's very early to start thinking about what the issues might be. But, you know, good to see Rowdy off to a good start. And, you know, proving that as a, as a bat first, you know, DH slash first baseman, he can really, uh, you know, have a place in the league. I, you know, I don't even know if he's been playing much DH this year. I think he's really I think stuck he's as, playing as first. first it's, it's been fabulous the, to the, see. The Brewers, the Brewers have, the, have the very similarly shaped uh, Dan Vogelback yes. as well, right? So yes. I think one of them's got a DH. You'd expect a player to be a star for the Brewers who looks like they enjoy beer. You know, Rowdy. Oh, that's true. That's good. That's a good point. Got like the big beard. He's got a shaved head. He's very smiley, sort of like Zaftig, but you know, in in like a beefy sort of way. Like he's definitely. Yeah, like, I, I agree. Like a, he a would guy not look out of place when you like, think of Milwaukee. Yeah, he would not look out of the place um, like running the tap room at a craft brewery, being like, "You got to try this Hellas, man. It's, yeah. it's so good." And just you know, he's bearded, sort of, sort of shaved head. Exactly, got, got ooh, sort of like ooh. a modern day, modern day Friar Tuck look. Can we call him Telesbuck? It's like a Hellesbuck beer. He's Rowdy Telesbuck. It's not bad. It's, it's not, not bad. bad. So that's that's one big bad. story about uh, Jews in sports this week. But another one in the world of golf. Jamie? Yeah, Max Homa won again. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Max Max Homa won the Wells Fargo Championship. Uh, he won by two strokes. It's his second great, Wells Fargo win. I don't want to make a joke about Jews and banking, but... Yeah, he won in 2019 as well. Um, this is his second win on the 21-22 tour. Uh, so pretty impressive, you know. Uh, he won by two strokes, sort of. Uh, him and Keegan Bradley were going back and forth on Sunday, uh, but he came out ahead. He's now ranked 29th in the world. Uh, you know, I think that's the first time he's been in the top 30. It is. Which I think is, you know, pretty meaningful just in terms of, like, how, how competitive he's been playing this year. He's had uh, four other top 20s. Uh, or five other top 20s, I think, in, in this season, along with the the win. And uh, he's just really rounding into form. You know, didn't have a great Masters, made the cut, came in came in 48th. Um, There's, but PGA Championship coming up in two weeks. He's, you know, who knows? He's yeah, doing very, very well. And, you know, uh, now, thanks to him and Daniel Berger, we have two current Jews in the top 30 in the world in golf, which, as far as we can tell, has yeah. never happened before. They both have four. And Gabe, I saw, I saw a tweet that you did about uh, how he he has to catch up to Corey Pavin, uh, the all-time Jewish uh, PGA Tour leader. How many? How many? uh, Pavin has fifteen wins. wins. The real question is, how many of those wins did he get while he was still Jewish? And then how many after he converted? Like, is there is there a timeline at which there are Jewish wins versus non-Jewish wins? Yeah, I was going to say, this is something we've talked about ages ago, about whether Corey Pavin counts as a Jewish athlete. Jewish by birth, but uh, converted at some point. But I will say, in, in re-examining that issue, I did find, and you know, he doesn't, you know, he's a retired golfer. He doesn't have the biggest social media presence. But mm-hmm. I did find a April 2020 Instagram post uh, where he has posted what looks to be uh, gefilte fish and matzo balls and matzo ball soup. And he says, thank you, cousins, uh, for the Passover <laughs> meal. Happy Passover to you as well. Hashtag Passover. Hashtag Moses let my people go. So that's a good is the jury out? I have no idea. That's not, you know, that's not, uh, hey, I've denounced Christ. I'm back in the fold. And I'm not saying that that is something he should, you know, be be needing to do. I'm not, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to get into the weeds here about his actual religious beliefs. But I would say that that makes him 
you know, he he can be a converted Christian, but he still he still has Jewish some. Origin. Yeah, it's, it's still his cousins. I do. He's I do still have, celebrating Passover. Have the answer, by the way, if we're going to be sort of specific on this. Sure. He converted to Catholicism or to Christianity, and I think fairly like you know biblical evangelical Christianity in 1991. Yeah. By okay. 19, by the end of the 91 season, he had nine wins on tour. So okay. that means Homa and Berger, if we're going strictly by the letter of halakha, the halakhic rule of how Jewish, how many you know wins did did uh, Corey Pavin have? That is nine wins. So that's five left for Berger and Homa to get to, to okay. pass. So to pass. However, Pavin only won one major, the '95 U.S. Open. So if either of them were to win two majors, that would probably put them ahead. I think it's Mario Party rules, where like one yeah, sure. one major is worth as many other non-major wins as you can come up with. Sure. Um, there was one other thing from a uh, recent event in the individual sports I wanted to mention, although not in, a, in an individual sport per se, but but Diego Schwartzman, uh, the the diminutive, I would say, tennis Jewish tennis player from Argentina, uh, made his debut pairing at the Italian Open with John Isner. Yes. Um, they, are, they are on to the round of 16, and... The amazing thing is, is Diego Schwartzman is quote unquote five foot seven. Uh, I do not know if that is that is yes. an actual, but it, sources sources say he is shorter than five foot seven. Mm-hmm. John Isner is six foot ten, and despite his name, I would say sort of Jewish center, not 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 Jewish guy, just, you know, just a regular American. Yes. But they are at least fifteen, somewhere between fifteen and seventeen inches apart in terms of their height. A picture of them together, it's like it's like twins or. Um, like that famous picture of uh, Manute Bull and Muggsy Bogues. Exactly. It is is, it's like... <laughs> is is he a Trump guy? Isner seems like he'd be a Trump guy. I don't know if he is. I know um, Tennis Sandgren. That guy's a, a big Yeah, that guy. guy's a big Trump here. guy. Uh, uh, John Isner, I'm not sure. But uh, watching him pair up with, with uh, Diego... And first of all, it's a great combination because Isner's got this, you know, ridiculous serve, obviously, because of his leverage of, you know, being being multiple meters tall. And Diego has, like, you know, the best return game in the business, basically. Lots of speed. So I think they work well together. I mean, you know, they're into the... Uh, into the into the round of sixteen at the at the Italian Open, so definitely have a chance to to win this and you know maybe stick together if they if they Absolutely. work well with doubles, especially as Roland Garros is coming soon for the two of them to get stay on clay where the two of them sort of have like this this excitement uh, together. Yeah, um, it, it, it's otherwise been a bit of a disappointing um, clay season for Diego. Yeah, you know, he is because I I don't know exactly how the different properties of the different tennis courts work, but. Clay seems to be his his forte. Um, you know, he made it to the French Open quarterfinals last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he made. I, I can't remember exactly, but I think he made it pretty far in some of the other in some of the you know clay season uh, clay season matchups uh, towards the end of 2000, 2021. Um, You know, the French Open, like again, he he made a semifinal in twenty twenty. It, it's really been his best one. So I, it's I'm, a little disappointing. I think he's he's sort of getting towards the end of his. Um, his window, window, you know. Well, he's 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 turning thirty this year. Yes, um, and know, tennis players, although small tennis exactly players tend like to one. last a little bit longer. Thinking about Andre Agassi and Roger Federer, for example. Um, That's true. That said, you know, I think tennis has sort of been a lot, a little bit different, you know, in the last couple of years as we've seen guys with a lot of different body types have success. But you right. know, if 
you know, God forbid, this is sort of towards the end of Diego Schwartzman. We've got sort of a new, also Spanish-speaking, right-handed replacement um, in Alejandro Davidovich, who yeah, recently right. made it, you know, into the last clay tournament of the year before this Italian Open. It ended, uh, I guess, a week and a half ago, um, the Monte Carlo Masters uh, in Monaco, uh, where uh, uh, Davidovich lost to Stefano Tsipidis, um in, in the finals, but after beating uh, Djokovic, Goffin, and Taylor Fritz, uh, you know, yeah. another Jewish-adjacent player, um, on the way to it. So it's, it's Davidovich is somebody absolutely looked to watch who's coming into French Open on a heater, um, and just like uh, uh, Diego Schwartzman, has a chance to make some noise. Yeah, so, you know, definitely some guys to watch in advance of the French Open. Uh, I think it starts a week Sunday. I mean, we're recording mm-hmm. on May 11th, so it, it should be starting within two weeks or so. Yep. Um, you know, it's the sort of, I, it, 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 it's not the first major, but I feel like it's the first major people watch in this part of the world because the Australian Open happens at some godforsaken hour um, <laughs> way on the other side of the world. And the French Open, the French Open is that nice, uh, like Sunday morning, Saturday morning watching where it's like, oh, it's eight in the morning. Is there professional sports on? Oh, great. The French Open. Yes. It's like, it's that perfect, you know, it's like why people like watching uh, Premier League soccer. And, and it has that sort of iconic, you know, color palette of the green seats and the orange clay, um, you know, in, in what makes it sort of probably the, what's probably the wildest thing is that Rafael Nadal is going to be going for his 14th French Open title. Um, if, he, if he could just give one of those to Diego Schwartzman, I personally would be particularly thrilled. Um, maybe even his countrymen... Uh, uh, Alex Davidovich. If he could give maybe his 14th to one, that, that would be great. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's been sort of unreal to watch him the last few years and, and you know, just sort of dominate on clay. So I'm sure that'll be the storyline again this year. But, Truly uh, amazing. We'll see We'll see if, uh, you know, we all, we're all cheering, go Diego, go. See how far he can make it. Vamos, um, Diego. As, as the clay clay season heads into its uh, into its grand slam, um, Gabe. Before we uh, dive deep into the survivor, any other Jews and sports news you wanted to talk about? Um, it was a disappointing couple of weeks for the Stroll family and the Stroll team. Um, you know, in the the last couple of F one events, most recently in the Jewish mecca of Miami, um, there were a lot of celebrities there, not particularly Jewish. DJ Khaled made it on TV a couple of times. Dwayne Wade made it on TV a couple of times. Um, but even though they didn't, you know, succeed in, in reaching a podium, um, Stroll actually got his uh, first points of the year. Um, oh wow! Yes, he finished tenth uh, after finishing uh, after starting the race dead last. So there was a, a technical penalty that put them at the end of the grid, and he worked his way up to tenth and got Aston Martin's first points of the year. So very exciting. Mazel tov to Lance Stroll uh, on getting his first point of the season in, you know, I guess. Uh, the Jewish Mecca of Miami. There was there was one other thing I wanted to talk about, not exactly sports related, but uh, sports sports media adjacent, which was the uh, that a trailer dropped for a Netflix movie coming out next month called Hustle, uh, starring Adam Sandler as a basketball scout. It's being produced by LeBron James. It also stars Ben Foster as <laughs> what appears to be a uh, Sam Hinkie or Brian Colangelo. Brian Colangelo type, uh, like uh, I mean, by, by which I mean a Phillies G, uh, sorry, a, a Sixers GM. We're, um, we're going to get into this in a bit, but Ben Foster is a Jewish guy who's very good at playing any sort of generic white guy. 
Like he is Jewish, but yeah, that's he could true. be. He's like I think him and Aaron Paul could probably be switched out in a lot of places, and you wouldn't notice. Except Foster is Jewish. You know, this will be uh, now in Hustle. This will be his third major sports movie after the program where he played Lance Armstrong and uh, and the Survivors. So you know. He, he's he's coming into his sort of Sandler zone of, <laughs> of being a Jewish sports star, you know, you know Jewish what? sports movie star. I really liked the program. Uh, and if we ever get a chance to talk to Mr. Foster about The Survivor, I know our producer Michael is working on that. Um, I, I would love to pick his brain about what it was like playing Lance Armstrong. Yeah. You know, in his words, so I w- one of the greatest villains in sports history. So I would say we're, we're looking forward to the hustle, or hustle, not the hustle, the uh, Anne Hathaway Rebel Wilson joint from a few years ago, <laughs> but hustle, uh, not hustle, not the hustler, yes, um, which is the Paul Newman uh, pool movie. Yes. Um, a, but, a, another uh, Jewish sports uh, movie. A Jewish sports movie Jewish that we could discuss movie, yeah. once on, on Film Corner. So I said, Gabe, I, I said on, on Twitter, um, the Sandler sports movie ranking for me is Gilmore, <laughs> Uncut Gems, Waterboy. Um, four is Eight Crazy Nights, the animated movie, and five is The Longest Yard. Do you think that's, do you agree with that, uh, generally speaking? I think I have to put you on the spot too much. No, here, I think that's pretty that a good. good ranking? I think I would agree yeah. with Happy Gilmore at number one. I think most, uh, uh Sandler heads, I, I, Sand heads, is that the right way to do it? Um, yeah. W- would agree with that. Um, you know, unfortunately, the, I, I guess this is his first sort of like auteur, uh, serious, you know, not comedy sports movie. Yeah, um, previously, I guess so. you know, most of them have been have been in the in the comedy category. I mean, uncut uncut gems is is a manic, you know, uh, romp. Not exactly a comedy, but uh, not not exactly a, a you know a drama. Uh, like not tugging at your heartstrings. This seems a little bit more like like this guy. It's this guy's one last chance at at redemption by you know taking Juan Hernan Gomez to the pros. Yeah. Like that's his. <laughs> That's his move here. Exactly, exactly. So, no, I, you're right. I don't think... I think that's probably, you know, his best sports movie. Also, you could discuss Pixels, the video game movie. Um, oh, good point. Good, I hadn't thought you, about that. You know, I know a bunch of people who were extras in that movie. It was made in Toronto, but it yeah. was not not good. Um, that said, the one thing you're missing, which, because it features a lot of sports, I would put probably... Between Gilmore and Uncut Gems, or maybe just after Uncut Gems, is you don't mess with the Zohan, which features both oh, that's true. both the of Israeli course, traditions right. of pro Kadima on the beach, you know, the paddle ball, <laughs> the paddle ball game, and there is a dramatic hacky sack tournament inside the that movie. That is a good point. So it's a it's a, a great so, great sports movie about peace between the Jews and the Palestinians, the Israelis and the Palestinians through their love of hacky sack. Therefore, all right. So once mutual once love of hummus and out, hacky sack. Right. Once Hustle comes out, we might have to do a revised Sandler sports <laughs> rankings with a little more thought put into it. Uh, maybe we'll slot in the basketball scenes from Grown Ups, like Shaq's <laughs> performance in Grown Ups in there. Yes. And, uh, yeah. and see where see where it ranks. Where, I mean, I think, it, you know, I'll definitely watch it. It's on Netflix, so it's, yeah. you know, it's easy to watch. And, Yo, it's you know, going to. Like you it. know, I don't think I've watched a Sandler movie on Netflix yet, but uh, uh, I will watch this one for sure. Uh, I, I, I do think that, that Happy Gilmore has to take the number one spot no matter what, though, because like... I would say I haven't I haven't really played a round of golf where somebody hasn't referenced Happy Gilmore. Yes, I think that's I impossible. I think that's probably true for most most millennials. If you're a millennial yeah, playing golf, someone will make a Happy Gilmore reference at some point within the 18 holes virtually all the time. Also important yeah. to remember, we've discussed this on the podcast, I, I think a lot of Adam Sandler cam- characters are, but Happy Gilmore is a canonically Jewish professional athlete. 
Um, right. it, is, it is in the Hanukkah song that Happy Gilmore is A, on the PGA Tour, and B, Jewish. Uh, which is, right. which is you know, very, very... It's rare to see in a sports movie to have a Jewish lead. So we're happy that Gilmore is, is doing that for us. Um, may- plus, plus, his, plus his grandmother is played by Francis Bay, me, Francis Evelyn Goffman of Manville, Alberta. Uh, so I think that's, that's as Jewish How as How many Jews were in Manville, Alberta at the time of Francis Bay's birth? That is a good question. We'll have to get uh, Ralph Ben Murgy to uh, to help. That's a great that a great opportunity. A good, uh, good, uh, good question for Yochumitzville. Yeah, great great question, producer Mike. We're gonna follow up on that and see if we can get a crossover episode yeah. talking about the life and times of Happy Gilmore's grandma, Francis Bay. We're gonna take a short break. Should we take a break? I think we should take a quick break and then uh, sure. get on to talking about the survivor. From award-winning journalist Marsha Lederman comes Kiss the Red Stairs, a compelling memoir of Holocaust survival, intergenerational trauma, divorce, and discovery that will guide readers through several lifetimes of monumental change. Marsha was five when a simple question led to a horrifying answer. She asked her mother why she didn't have any grandparents. Her mother told her the truth, the Holocaust. Decades later, her parents dead and herself a mother to a young son, Marsha begins to wonder how much history has shaped her own life. Reeling in the wake of a divorce, she craves her parents' help. But in their absence, she is gripped by a need to understand the trauma they suffered, and she begins her own journey into the past to tell her family stories of loss and resilience. Kiss the Red Stairs, available now wherever books are sold. So we're back. Uh, we'd like to spend the second half of the pod today talking about the recently released Barry Levinson film, The Survivor. Um, I should say that we'll, we'll try to keep it uh, as spoiler-free as possible, at least in the beginning. But, you know, this is a, a story from 70-odd years ago. It's it, it's sort of like one of those things like a matter of public record. Yep. Um, so if you, if you really feel strongly about watching the movie in advance of hearing us talk, you know, feel free to, you know... Pause this and, and put us back in your pocket. Go watch the movie. We, I, I would say from the top, Gabe. I, I think we both, you know, thumbs up on this one. Definitely yeah. recommend it as a as as a movie. Um, aside altogether from the from the the Jewish angle, the sports angle. Uh, you know, just very competently made movie. Barry Levinson, obviously an Academy Award winning director. Uh, for Rain Man, you know, has his sports movie chops, obviously with the Natural, one of the one of the great baseball movies of all time, and uh, you know, I think this is probably his first sports movie since then. Um, it tells the story of Harry Haft, the and you know, who's billed in the in the movie as the survivor of Auschwitz, and it's it's really a remarkable story, I think. It it, it absolutely is, as we mentioned, sort of at the top of the show. Uh, Haft was forced to fight to the death in several boxing matches um, throughout uh, uh, throughout his time in Auschwitz, and then sort of parlayed that when he was a refugee in America into a number of prize fights uh, in North America. Um, yeah, so there's there's sort of two two parallel stories going the, on. Yeah, exactly, and and it you know jumps back and forth in, in time quite a bit. The, the boxing uh, in the camps, as as you said, it's it's. That's the survival part yeah. because that is, uh, you know, I, I think true story. That's part of it, which is that Jews in the camps were, you know, forced to fight each other for the guards' entertainment, and if you lost, you were killed often. Yep. 
Um, if you didn't want to box when they wanted you to box, you could be killed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't think, you know, for our listeners, we don't need to go chapter and verse on the uh, horrors of the Holocaust. You know, yeah, I'm going to assume our audience is pretty well versed in that. Um, And this is in line with that and the scenes set in the concentration camp uh, and around that that time, they're shot in black and white. Um, You know, I think the brutality is very much on display. Um, And I think really sort of just gets that idea of, you know, there's a bit of a a layering of that with just the, you know, the brutality of boxing as a sport as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is combat. It is it is a fight. You know, it's a simulacrum of a a fight to the death sort of thing. But, you know, it has rules and all that. But uh, the boxing that we see in the camps is not that. No, it's brutal. Brutal. It's fight Uh, to the death. It's, you know, there's a, a notable scene. Um, in one of the matches, I think it might be his first one or it might be a second one where, you know, Haft is fighting and he's winning quite badly. And he's like imploring the guy he's fighting, like, don't get up, like, don't fight me. Stop. Like, you know, let's try and end this. And and the guy keeps on fighting um, and he right. keeps on fighting, you know, because it's his survival. He hits him from behind. He tries to do anything to win. And ultimately he is shot by a guard. Um, yeah. So it's it's and- not. It's not a uh, the Queensberry rules. No, and, and and so you see, you know, have to go through that, and you know, the already you know dehumanized uh, half who's you know working in the camps and then sort of forced to box, forced to sort of be the pet of uh, of, of the Nazi soldier or guard who mm-hmm. um, picks you know picks him out as a fighter, and uh, played by you know, played by he, Billy Magnuson, who we talked again before the show before we started recording, really really has the Nazi look down. Yes, very much so. Um, it's very graphic. It's very detailed in terms of how he survives and what he does to sort of make it through the the, the Holocaust and make it out of the camp. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, how boxing is sort of integral to that. Now, now, concurrently, at the same time as that, you see his post-war boxing career. You sort of only see the end of it. He, he didn't have a long career as a boxer. Mm-hmm. Um, we should say that they actually don't show this in the movie, but historically he, he did box um, while he remained in, in, in Europe in the DP camps. Um, he was he, he was crowned, I think, uh, I just want to make sure I, I get the title right because it, it, it was a specific title. It probably didn't exist for very long, but in, in January 1947, he won an amateur Jewish heavyweight championship organized by the U.S. Army. Yeah, in, in, in a refugee Munich. camp, from what I understand. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so then, you know, a year later, he comes to the United States. should say that uh, the real Harry Haft is a bit younger than Ben Foster. Is Ben Foster is probably in his, in his late 30s or early 40s harry haft when he was boxing was like 23 years old yeah um and you know the movie shows sort of what it's like to be that boxer you know he is the survivor of auschwitz he's not supposed to talk about it because um you know him and the other uh holocaust survivors living in brooklyn uh you know they just want to keep to themselves and not dredge up the past and and especially relive you know it's it's sort of a scary part and there's a scene where he gets sort of yelled at for this um when the sort of the the public knowledge of what he did like he ultimately was responsible for the deaths not responsible it's the wrong way to put it he you know was the hand that killed a bunch of people whether or not he was forced to is sort of irrelevant to a lot of people um and he was forced to and he certainly when he was on the run from the camps killed to survive in a number of in a number of cases um as well you know there's you know dramatic moments where he's deciding whether to kill another person and it's it's you know, very sort of hard to watch in a lot of ways. Um, and that's, 
I think that sort of leads into a lot of the the crux of the movie and a lot of the reason I think a lot of survivors now don't like to talk about the Holocaust in a lot of different ways. I know, for example, my grandmother, you know, uh, was was not particularly interested in talking about it. There's sort of a lot of guilt in being the survivor. And there's a lot of trauma that, that you relive, ha- you know, having to go through it and then keep going. Absolutely. And, and that's what comes out sort of in the in the post-war scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it talks about his, his relationship with his wife and his children and, you know, the ongoing trauma from what had happened to him and uh, what he was forced to do. And, you know, this sort of terrible thing about not not wanting to grapple with what he had to do to survive. As you said, he wasn't responsible for the deaths of the people he mm-hmm. fought, but... Uh, you know, he he did sort of contribute to them in some way, and he was forced by, uh, you know, this genocidal regime to to sort of take that stance. Um, I I found the boxing scenes post war in New York uh, pretty like very well shot, yeah. very uh, you know uh, nicely stylized. The, the, there's a you know very real intensity to it. I mean, I think boxing is so cinematic in some ways that it's like, you know, in a, in a movie version of boxing, you can get the camera in places that the camera can't really go in a real boxing match. And it just shows the sort of the, the force of it. And, uh, you know, so I think it's very, you know, beautifully shot, um, in in this film, the, the, the sort of culmination, you know, there, there is a bit of a, a sports movie, um, trope to it of him gearing up for his fight, uh, with Rocky Marciano, who is, Not at the time, but later, obviously, became the heavyweight champion of the world. One of the great boxers of all time. And we should say, also, uh, depicted by Paul Newman in Somebody Up There Likes Me. Um, another movie about boxing. But, uh, you know, that's the sort of sports movie cliche of, like, you know, him training and getting ready mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, you know, he ultimately gets knocked out by Marciano in the third round. but And that's his last fight ever. But in the movie, the reason he's doing it is sort of to try to find his girlfriend from before the war yep. who he ha- hasn't had any contact with and just to sort of get publicity and get his name in the papers. Um, so, well, you know, the, oh, I, there's the, a very interesting scene I'd like to talk about sort of Holocaust related after the, after the Marciano fight is sort of after he loses, you know, he, he is alone by himself in the locker room having sort of not been humiliated, but beaten pretty bloody. But, Right. There's sort of a strange piece I found in that scene where the fight is over, but he's safe and he didn't kill anybody. And he's sort of at peace with what he, with fighting when he, in a way he has never been before. Um, yeah. And I think he talks about that in the movie mm-hmm. as sort of like, you know, after what he's been through, you know, he's not worried about the guy in the ring with him because, you know, he has, he has his own memories of what happened. Exactly. And, he's, uh, he's safe that's much, much in the locker room, completely alone by himself, which is not a place, not something he ever had the luxury of being in his years in the camps. Yeah. Um, so really, really impressive performance by Ben Foster. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, you know, sort of transformed both in terms of when we see him back, uh, in the camp and afterwards, you know, in oh, the camp. physically I, and, he, and he, the he aging muscle loss. Yeah. Yeah, he lost a huge amount of weight to play uh, to play the the character during the Holocaust, and uh, and you know put on a significant amount of weight weight and muscle to play Harry. Uh, and in Harry his like sixties, and you know retired in in Miami Beach, like there's there's scenes of him, right? You know there could be makeup, there could be prosthetics, but he plays this guy for sixty odd years of his life, um, yeah. and he plays so him convincingly. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, all in all, I think a very good watch. It's available on um, Crave in Canada. Yep. HBO Max it's, it's, in America. It's on, yeah. It's HBO an HBO Max original. America. I, before we go. It, it had. So I, I have I two small say it had, criticisms. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Sure. I have two small criticisms. I'm happy to hear you talk about it. The first one, I, you know, you think whenever you see Holocaust movies and in any Holocaust, they always have to feature a character of like a conflicted Nazi. As if the movie would right. be too palatable, not palatable enough for non-Jews, for the Nazis to just be universally bad. Um, you know, there's a scene in this movie, I won't spoil it, where Billy Magnuson's character sort of laments the inhumanity of the concentration camps. Uh, and, and, uh, and it's not, you know, he's not a good guy, by no means, is the character. And that sort of, I found that scene somewhat unnecessary and a little bit patronizing. Because no, this guy's like an evil motherfucker. Like, he doesn't... He doesn't feel bad about what he's doing in any way, shape, or form, except for this one scene where he talks about sometimes feeling bad. That's a good point. I, I think that that is a, probably a bit of an overused trope. You know that there's uh, the conflicted Nazi or the Nazi who has uh, second thoughts. Of, but on the other hand, it's like you got to make characters rounded, and I, I don't know. You can you can show the inhumanity of of the of the character, but you want to have something to sort of glom onto as well, or that there that there's some conflict internally within the character i understand why it's done i agree um but i think it's interesting the way that even that is done because um you know harry i think just sort of like doesn't care what the not yeah billy magnuson's character says like he doesn't really listen to him and he doesn't you know obviously he does when he is fighting for him and as a means of survival but as soon as he is no longer useful for him in terms of survival uh he's dispatched with, yes. with let's say and and you know similarly i would say like like patronizingly that's that scene that we're talking about they're like having a friendly drink um right you know for the first time in the whole movie it's it's so i i had a small problem with that also in the uh, it took me a little while to get used to it, but early in the movie i think you, you you're going to be shocked by ben foster's accent mostly because <laughs> when he's playing like a 22 year old man he speaks like my 78 year old grandfather did when i was a child like what you're That's telling true. me that it's cost five dollars for the fish you know it's that sort of it, it, yeah hokey accent it is a bit old yeah it, it is a bit ultra cocker um but i i got used to it or maybe they yeah, you get used to it you absolutely get used to it and yeah. and a good portion of the movie is in you know a good portion of his lines are in i think a mix of yiddish polish and english polish yeah yeah um yeah i all, all in all, you know, I thought it was pretty good. Pretty good Jewish representation. Um, we should say Hans Zimmer did the music. Yep. Um, you know, which re- real, real, uh, real change from Zo- from Dune coming, <laughs> coming to do this. Is he, um, is he but, Inception as well? I think so. Yes, that's right. Um, so you know, the music was very was very good. Moving score. There's you know sort of klezmer elements in, in the movie. Um, pretty good Jewish representation. Not perfect. You know, I'm I'm a bit of a stickler or you know i've had a bit of a peccadillo about jews being played by jews so not not perfect in this movie i say danny devito's and he plays uh rocky marciano's trainer charlie goldman yeah um but i think danny devito gets a pass like do we do we all agree with that in, in terms of being able to play jews you know yeah he's married to one he 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 his you know his chi- child is jewish there's, his children are jewish, there's like, like and this is this is not really an appropriate thing to say in 2022, but I tend to believe yeah. that Italians are Jewish and Jewish people are Italians. Yeah, 
Like there's, I, I agree. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of cultural overlap between Jews and Italians, and I think that might be, you know, like it is Danny DeVito playing Charlie yeah. Goldman. It's not like Russell Crowe or is playing Charlie right. Goldman. You know, it's it's yeah. you know, there. It's not John Leguizamo was in the movie not playing Charlie Goldman. Right. Similar, similarly, Vicky Creeps, um, who people probably remember from uh, Phantom Thread. Yeah. Uh, she plays uh, Haft's wife, post-war. You, you uh, know, not Jewish either, but... You know, she's... Say her grandfather was a member of the Luxembourgish res- resistance. Yeah, she, so she is Swiss. There's, there's some good some, anti-Nazi Some sort there. of Swiss Luxembourgian, and I think if you're Swiss or or Luxembourgish, I think is the demonym, but if you're Swiss or Luxembourgish, you, are, you were either a Nazi... Or resistance, like there's no in between for those neutralish countries. Yeah, so so mixed points um, in, ter- in in terms of sorry, Devito and Creeps playing uh, Jewish characters. But otherwise, I thought pretty good Jewish representation mm-hmm. um, among most of the characters. Obviously, Ben Foster is Jewish, and I think you know I I, I would love to talk to him about this because I, I can only imagine that was a you know I I don't know that you. I don't know that you need to have a Jewish person play that role, but I don't know how one a non-Jew could do it justice. That's totally. Like, no, I, you, I do you, that that's, you couldn't. That's part of it. I also, I mean, we can get into this deep, but Peter Sarsgaard character, Sarsgaard character was quite good. You know, Sar- yep. Sarsgaard is not Jewish. The character wasn't Jewish. But, you know, the character was extremely into sharing the story of the Holocaust as like a moral necessity, um, which right. I, again, I don't know the particular history about that uh, and maybe the real life uh, you know, Emery Anderson felt that way, but that that part seemed a little rosy to me. Um, yeah, that's that's probably true. But again, you sort of, sometimes you need those characters, yeah. those reporter types in, in these movies to do some um, uh, exposition. Also, I you know I thought this was interesting. If you're if you're uh, uh, you know Darzakovsky, Israeli actress, star of the huge hit Beauty and the Baker, played uh, half daughter mm. Leah. Um, so that's or, you know that's a, a good not his daughter, not his daughter his uh, his girlfriend his daughter's girlfriend his, his sorry his pre-war yeah, girlfriend yeah. wow my mistake um his pre-war girlfriend yeah. um so that's I mean there's some you know the film ends like most Holocaust movies end with here's the survivors you know lasting child the children they had the grandchildren they had so casting an Israeli actor I think tells that story a little bit. Right. And I, I wanted to mention uh, just one last thing, which I haven't actually seen this movie, but there's a uh, 1989 uh, movie with a sort of similar subject matter called Triumph of the Spirit, uh, starring Willem Dafoe and Edward James Olmos and, and Robert Loggia about huh. Salomo Aurich, um, who is a, you know, Thessaloniki Jewish uh, boxer who similarly survived the Holocaust by boxing over in over 200 matches at, at Auschwitz as well. I'm, I'm sure um, there were a lot of... of- people who this happened to yeah and also similarly had a post-war uh a, a brief post-war and pre-war fighting career mm-hmm. but uh you know an interesting story so maybe something we should check out as well and you know contrast and compare not not something i've heard about his movie but obviously willem dafoe's a, an excellent actor yeah and uh be interesting to, to learn more about the story of, of salomo salamo aruch i'm not i'm not positive on the pronunciation there uh my my greek uh, pronunciation is not <laughs> is not, not what it once but, was uh, obviously yeah, not as yes i'm sure an interesting story as well any, um, any last thoughts about the survivor i mean i i definitely think people should check it out it's i would say a major a major holocaust uh yep. holocaust sports film you know it's probably the first holocaust movie in a, in a little while um that has sort of captured the the brutality of it and and really on this interesting axis and this question of sort of you know what what one must do what one must have done to survive absolutely i mean i i thought 
I, I think the movie is absolutely worth worth watching, and I'm glad to have talked about it. I think we covered most of it, um, at least most of the information on it. Uh, but we're always happy to reach out to us on Twitter or email, and we're happy to chat with you about it uh, uh, more. Yeah. So why don't we leave it there? Uh, as always, um, we're produced by the Canadian Jewish News. Uh, our producer, Michael Freeman. You can find our podcast articles and everything else on the Canadian Jewish News website, the CJN.ca. Uh, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to tell it. Tell your friends. Uh, if you don't have a, tell your friends and nephews, yeah. and nieces. If you don't, if you don't have a podcast app to like and subscribe to this, just ask a, a younger person <laughs> in your orbit, and they can sh- set that up for you. Yes, ask someone bar mitzvah age. And, and as always, follow us on Twitter uh, at Menschwarmers. Uh, you can hear all our pithy comments and uh, bemoaning the Jays' recent struggles uh, to, to score any runs. Uh, and, and until next time, we'll, we'll see you soon. This episode has been brought to you by Looking Back, Moving Forward, 160 Years of Jewish Life in B.C. Published by the Jewish Museum and Archives of British Columbia for their 50th anniversary, this elegant volume is a once-in-a-generation collection of Jewish life and history throughout the province. Order your copy today at jewishmuseum.ca.